hopefully I'll keep you awake and it'll be a little bit entertaining and also a little, you probably leave here a little disgusted as well, but that, that's how I roll. So, all right, so here are my disclosures. Uh, many of you have probably seen them already. Um, there's quite a few of them and uh, really there's a lot of competing companies on here, so seriously, it's hard to bias one company over another when they're competing with each other. You know, um, so, but it's important to disclose those. And there's a, I have another disclosure I just add to these slides. So if anybody uses Twitter, please feel free to tweet this out. Um, I am not an opioid zealot. I want to make that crystal clear. But what I am is a zealot of truthfulness and science. And today, I'm going to dispel some of the myths that um, we are all seeing uh, that just disgust me. Um, we're going to talk about fentanyl for sure, but in order to really understand the impact of fentanyl, we have to understand the impact of all the rhetoric uh, that we're seeing in the news. So I'm going to start by separating out fact from fiction, and that is, more specifically, where were we? You know, how did this crisis come about? Uh, how much of it is true? How much is not true? Where are we now? <clears throat> How do we get there? Uh, how do we get to where we are now? And again, clarifying some of the, uh, some of the facts. So the objectives of, the, of this lecture are to review the current opioid usage and some of the outcomes data. Uh, we'll look at the facts and the myths with regard to usage and mortality. Recognize at least two medical disorders of uh, what I call epidemic proportion other than opioid uh, abuse. And uh, that's important because it helps us understand really what, what uh, addiction and abuse is, is really uh, all about. So that's important. Uh, and then finally, summarize strategies to address the opioid epidemic and, and uh, mitigate uh, opioid risk. So I'm going to leave you today with some um, advice on how we might, uh, we might move forward. All right, so... The pre-post-test question, non-medical use of opioid analgesics from early 2000 to mid-2000. When I say mid-2000s, I mean like around 2010, not really, not 2050, obviously, um, but halfway between 2000 and where we are now. Um, and, there, you know, did it increase? Did it decrease? Remain the same? Has it fluctuated? So we're, we're going to come back to that later. And then the other question is, which of the following is true regarding fentanyl? Is it less potent than heroin? Uh, illicit use of prescription fentanyl is on the rise. Illicit fentanyl could be less potent than uh, pharmaceutical fentanyl, and fentanyl is the most potent uh, phenylpiperidine. So, um, so there's a, that's kind of a trick question, so we're going to come back to that. All right, so facts and some foreshadowing. So between 2016 and 2017, the DEA reported a 117% increase in the identification of fentanyl and fentanyl-related compounds. Unfortunately, when medical examiners do these tests, they oftentimes have not distinguished between the two. And if you know the chemistry of these drugs, and you will before you leave here, you'll see why if you do a test for fentanyl, regardless what fentanyl it is, unless you split it out or know what you're looking for, you're never going to know it's illicit fentanyl. So I suspect that there are a number of illicit fentanyls that we don't know about that are coming back as fentanyl because we don't know what we're looking for. Um, all right, so this illicit fentanyl has been used to, to cut heroin uh, for, for business reasons, right? So if you have, a, if you have a, a pile of heroin 
and you get X amount of dollars for it, and you can give this much heroin, all right, and the rest could be lactose, and put in like a, 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 a pinpoint amount of carfentanil, well, obviously, you're going to maximize your profits, right, because you can get the same thing, the same thing for, uh, for one injection, but it will cost you maybe one one-thousandth of what, of what heroin would cost you. And it's one of the reasons why the price of heroin has come down so much on the street, because it's not just heroin. So the DEA reported in 2017 that fentanyl was identified uh, in, in various samples as a single ingredient up to 43%. And it's gotten worse. Um, and a small fraction of fentanyl-related deaths are due to prescription fentanyl, but it's so small, it's, it's almost unmeasurable. All right, so this has created a problem. I, I gave a lecture in Kentucky uh, a couple weeks ago, and an office manager came out, and we're discussing a, a case, and she said, well, our docs don't prescribe fentanyl anymore because of the, the whole fentanyl crisis. I'm like, what? No, I, I'm like, well, what do you mean? She goes, it's a horrible drug. It's, it's horrible. All these people are dying. I'm like, you do realize that they're not dying of prescription fentanyl. She goes, well, what's the difference? It's still fentanyl. Right? So we, we have, we have a, a problem. And these are people that are in the healthcare care field, right? So it's, it's an issue. Now, Steve Pasek uh, showed this, this slide yesterday. It was, uh, I believe it was developed by Doug, Doug Gorley quite some time ago. And, I mean, I've been, I've been at this um, gee, almost, almost four decades, right? And I'm telling you, I, I mean... It, we have to add another. We have to add another uh, pendulum on another uh, pendulum on there because it's like it's like pointing north on the left side. I mean, it's like you know, it, it's probably about ten o'clock. <laughs> I've, I've just never seen anything like it in my life. So, um, myths about uh, addiction in the U.S. So, opioid addiction is 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 not dominated by African American African American community. Uh, increased opioid prescriptions are the cause of of overdose deaths. That for sure is not the case. And addiction starts with teens using opioids. So I'm going to show you some graphs on this because none of those things are true. None of them. And I, and I suspect that, that um, you know, if, if this opioid epidemic has not found its way into the, the um, uh, middle and upper middle class communities, we wouldn't be paying too much attention to it, which, which also sickens me. Okay, so... With regard to addiction, exposure is necessary, um, but, but exposure is not sufficient in order for somebody to be, to be addicted. If that was the case, especially while we're all in Vegas, we would all be alcoholics. Right? And we know that about 12% of, of the population are alcoholics. So, so it, it can't be then that if you have exposure alone uh, that, that that makes you addicted. So what you need is exposure to drug. You need a vulnerable person at a vulnerable time. That's what you need. All right? So if you have a, let's say, a, a college uh, basketball player that's got a scholarship to, to, to school, and they should, for example, fall and, and let's say, break a leg, all right? And then they get immer- uh, um, admitted to the hospital, in the hospital for a couple of days. Now we have a vulnerable person with exposure at a vulnerable time. Here's a person that had a scholarship, potentially is going to lose the scholarship, is maybe depressed because they're not with their, their friends, they're not in schools, they're not doing what they need to do. They have uh, all these worries, exposed to a drug, and you think anybody in the hospital is going to ask this person before discharge, um, were you sexually abused as a child, do your parents smoke, 
to use smoke, well, the last, they'll ask him if he smokes, but, um, but the kinds of questions that we should be assessing for any patient that we give opioids to probably won't get asked. It's like, you know, set the bone, get the patient out of the hospital, right? And then they go for a follow-up visit and had a compound fracture, and the provider may say, well, you know, I'll give you some, some opioid. But the way, the way it is now, it's even the flip of that. You know, you're exposed to opioids, and then after a week, they yank them away. You know, so we got a, a, another problem, and, and that is that, um, you know, massive withdrawal in a patient that's depressed and, and perhaps now suicidal. So there are all kinds of issues. So substance abuse is complex. It, um, there's a lot of rhetoric, of course, that, that comes with it. But um, it is genetic. It's psychiatric. It's social, um, environmental, uh, and economic. So all these things play a role uh, in, in substance abuse. All right, so... Um, substance abuse does come in all varieties, and this is a perfect, um, a, a perfect uh, geographic area to talk about this, right? Because um, we have chocolate, we have drugs, we have gambling, uh, you know, so there are all kinds of reasons why people do this. Now, I kind of like to talk sometimes about, about um, addiction and, and, and what, what's actually happening physiologically. So, you know, if you're exposed to if you're exposed to an opioid, for example, what ends up happening, as I think you probably all know, is that your, your brain starts to adjust and downregulate noradrenaline. All right? And so at the beginning, you're going to get drowsy because noradrenaline decreases and you're exposed to the opioid. But then the, the, that drowsiness starts to go away because the, the noradrenaline starts to come up to baseline. And then you're not feeling quite as good because you don't have as much dopamine rush so you might take a little bit more drug. You take a little bit more drug, and the cycle starts all over again. It might make you a little bit drowsy, but then the norepinephrine sort of comes up to where it needs to be, and so does the dopamine. And then if you yank away the drug, what happens is since the brain started producing more noradrenaline, now all of a sudden you get a massive amount of noradrenaline. There's no opiate to block it anymore. So that's, that's basically what's happening. But it's also happening on the dopamine side. right? So you need more drug now to fill... Base, not happy. You need more drug just to feel baseline because the dopamine is coming down. It's just the opposite, right? So if you give drug to a patient and they get euphoric, it's because the dopamine goes up, right? So then when you keep taking the drug, the body adjusts because the, the brain doesn't want to be too happy, right? So the dopamine starts to come down. Well, this dopamine issue happens with lots of these, these other, you know, the chocolate, whether it's, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm a chocolate hawk. I, I mean, it, it, it is crazy how much chocolate like I'll eat. I, I have to. My wife hides it on me. I mean, and and if my wife goes on a diet, like I lose weight, and that, that's not good because like I'm already like you know it's bad. So I end up hiding candy bars in, in the trunk of my car. Not this time of year because it melts, but in, in the winter time I do that. So I I I may have a problem. So. Um, for, for uh, obesity, for, if somebody has an eating disorder, there's a most you've probably heard of the drug called Contrave, right? And Contrave is a, is a, has two products in it, right? It's got naltrexone and bupropion. And people often say to me, uh, uh, well, like, I don't even understand why this works. Well, it's clear to me why it works. It works because... Um, what it, if, you, if you, like, eat a bunch of potato chips and that makes you feel good and you, and, and you eat more, um, you eat more for that dopamine feeling. Now, I've got one daughter that's a runner. Now, you know, they talk about this euphoria, you know, when you're, you know, this Keflin rush when, when, when you're running. 
Now, that daughter is unbelievable. Like, if she eats one potato chip, she says, I, I got to go for a run. I'm like, you serious? I'm going to gain weight. I, I'm like, I'll, I'll, whatever. So it, we have people are the, the, the opposite. But for people who have an eating disorder, they eat more potato chips. You give them 10, they, they eat 20. You give them 20, they eat 30. Um, because it makes them feel good. Or if somebody has a, you know, a, an eating disorder with all, all sorts of food, they, you know, they wolf down the food and they're like, oh, why did I do that? Right? So um, the reason they do it is because they, their dopamine is kind of offset. When they eat, it makes them feel really, really good. So bupropion blocks reuptake of dopamine. All right? So it gives them the dopamine that they're, that they're craving. So why, why naltrexone? Because that, that dopamine has a negative feedback and, and cause a, causes a rush of our natural encephalins or our own, our own natural opiates. But if you give naltrexone, it blocks it. Okay, so that's why it's a great combination for an eating disorder. Who, who, would, who would have thought about that? Somebody did, obviously. So anyway, um, now this is a, a slide I borrowed from, uh, from Dr. Pasek, and uh, he was kind enough to let me use it. So... I love this slide. So he likens fentanyl, uh, he, he likens this to a fentanyl patch because it's a complex carbohydrate. And if you eat the whole bowl of rice, um, then uh, you, know, you don't really get a sugar rush, right? And he likens this to trans-immediate release, uh, uh, trans-mucosal immediate release fentanyls, right? Because the, you get all kinds of sugar like, uh, all, all at once. So uh, it's important how we give these drugs, and one of the reasons why extended-release opioids are really important to have on the, on, on the market. So the next part of this, we're going to talk about you know, what the issues are. So with regard to opioids, we have really two types of consumers. Um, and, and this is largely ignored when we, when we read a lot of the news. You have, the, uh, you have people with opioid uh, use, uh, use disorder, um, and those are people with, you know, that might abuse heroin or whatever comes along with it. Uh, prescription opioids and other drugs, and then you have legitimate opioid consumers uh, that are on long-term therapy versus short-acting opioids, and then you have a combination of one and two above. So you got patients that, I mean, I've got patients that have opioid use disorder, or at least they 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 misuse their drugs, they're dose creeping, but the patient has um, a severe pain. They've got cardiac disease, hypertension, diabetes, and AFib. Now, am I going to give that patient an SNRI or an NSAID? Well, hell no. No point in giving them an anticonvulsant because they don't have any neuropathic pain, right? So we have to sometimes make a decision of what's the, the lesser of the evils. So now trying to separate some of the fact from fiction. Uh, this, uh, this was put together by uh, Elliot Crane, and uh, it, it basically shows that uh, death per 100,000 in groups, by far, um, whites, uh, whites have that, right? Um, and, uh, I mean, you can see that the total is there, Hispanics and, and, and blacks. Um, this slide here, I know I can't read this, but what I've done on the subsequent slides, I've blown up what I want to show you, but I just want to show you that it did appear uh, on the Internet. So it says drug overdose uh, uh, death data, and the title of this slide is All That Glitters Is Not Gold. And the, way I, the reason I say that is because a lot of times we see the headlines and certain things stick with us, Right? So just because it's glittering in front of us does not mean that's, that's, what we should, that's the point we should leave with. But unfortunately, most people do. All right, so opioid prescription, this is what the article said. Opioid prescription and illicit are the main driver of drug overdose deaths. Opioids were involved in 42,249 deaths in 2016 
And opioid overdose deaths were five times higher in 2016 than 1999. Now, unless you're a numbers nerd, you look at that and, and all you see is 42,000 and some odd deaths, 2016 in opioids. All right? So, um, so let's go through that again. Prescription and illicit are the main driver, but, they, they don't, but then, they put the, then they put the number in, the total number, and they don't separate out the illicits, right? So it's kind of misleading. This one, U.S. drug overdose deaths continue to rise, increase fueled by, in, increases fueled by synthetic opioids. Now, if you look at this one, it says an in-depth analysis of 2016 drug overdose data shows that America's overdose epidemic I put that in red because I'm, the overdose epidemic um, is probably not from prescription opioids, at least not today, is spreading geographically and increasing across demographic groups. The report from researchers at the CDC um, and, uh, appears in today's issue of MMWR. Drug overdoses kill 63,632 Americans. Now, um, people look at that, and this is an article that talks about opioids. And this says nearly two-thirds of the deaths, 66% uh, involve a prescription or illicit opioid. But they don't tell you, they say prescription or illicit, they should say prescription and or illicit, because most of them are not prescription. All right, so I don't know really what they mean by, by involve. Involve the prescription or illicit. Does that mean alcohol, the patients are on benzodiazepines? Does it mean that the patients that took the prescription drugs were prescribed them, or were they not prescribed to them? These are all important questions that are left out of the equation. Very, very important questions. Deaths from opioid overdose, uh, overdoses uh, now higher than car accident fatalities. That's the bold type print. And underneath it says in small letters, CDC estimates 42,000 people overdosed on opioids in 2016. Fentanyl-related drugs are one of the major reasons. Well, people don't see that. The people see deaths from opioid overdoses are not high, now higher than car fatalities, right? Um, so... Um, Here's an interesting one. The opioid epidemic, a crisis years in the making. Um, and this one, I don't think I blew this one. Uh, let's see, fueled. Uh, okay. So the current opioid epidemic uh, is the deadliest drug crisis in American history, and it goes on. Uh, and it, it says killing roughly 64,000 people last year. All right. Now, you see the headline, the opioid epidemic? And underneath there, it says killing roughly 64,000 people a year. 64,000 is a number that includes... All drugs. All drugs. All right? When somebody looks at this, the, the take-home message is going to be, oh, 64,000 people die from opioids. This is a, a horrible thing. So overdoses fueled by opioids. All right, so this, this I bold typed it for you, right? And it says more than gun, gun, uh, guns or car accidents and doing so. That's, that's absurd. I mean, certainly the amount, of, um, the amount of massacres in this country by guns far, far, far exceed, um, probably by five or ten times the amount of people that die from prescription opioids, um, uh, whether they're taken um, legally or illicitly. Okay, so then we have spurious, spurious correlations. And this, is, this I pulled off of one of my blogs. And this was this is a very fun blog to write. So this one shows points scored by losing team in the Super Bowl uh, versus the deaths caused by opioids and related analgesics. All right? So, I mean, you could just as easily write an article and say, oh, my God, you know, things are horrible. The, the, super, the, the, the losing Super Bowl team is, uh, you know, this is, this is going to help us track opioids. Um, the, the, 
The next one is the, the deaths caused by opioids and related analgesics versus the cost of 16-ounce potato chips. This is, this is unadjusted, but you can see it correlates pretty well. All right? So, I don't know. Maybe we should uh, <clears throat> start tracking potato chips uh, with the prescription monitoring program. This slide here is the number and age-adjusted rates of drug overdoses by death in 2014. Um, and and uh, um, so you can see that as, you know, now this is, this is drug overdose. This is all drug overdoses. So if we go through this, and, and I can do it quickly so you can kind of see the, you can kind of see the, the um, colors change. So there's that one, 2014, 2015, 2016. Again, all drugs, all right? And now this is statistically significant drug overdose death rates increased from 2014 to 2015. There were increases, mostly, mostly in the Northeast. This is statistically significant drug overdose death rates from 2015 uh, to 16. Uh, this one, all right, so statistically significant changes in drug overdose death rates involving prescription opioids. This is only opioids. So look at this. This is what we're looking at here. All right. So, so the majority of these deaths are not from opioids, um, and these prescription opioids are not all taken by people to whom they were prescribed. Uh, this is 2015 to 2016 again. All right, and this is synthetic uh, opioids uh, other than methadone. All right, so it, it could be things like uh, oxycodone, things like that. Okay, and then this one, I'm, I'm, it's too hard to read this one, but basically this, this is, you can get this off the CDC website. It basically breaks it down by, um, by uh, metro area, uh, different parts of the United States and, 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 uh, um, in 2016. So if you want to see if it's a large metro area, a medium metro area, breaks it down that way. This, this, that is pretty, the statistics are pretty good the way they lay them out. Uh, they just don't read, they, they put the graphs there, but, re, but their assessment of the graphs are often misleading. Um, this is number of reported law enforcement encounters testing positive for fentanyl in the U.S. between 2010 and 2015. Now take a look at that. Haven't seen anything like that yet. All right, we don't see a whole lot of reporting of this issue. Right, so, so as Jeff Gooden said yesterday, um, we want to. We want the. We're thinking of making the first. Um, yes, sir. Is this because of use or because of on-duty exposure? Because of use or on-duty exposure. Are, are these law enforcement officers using fentanyl and heroin, or is, are they getting exposed to it? They tested positive because they were exposed to it on duty. Oh no no no! I think you misunderstood. These are these these are um, when I say law enforcement counters arrests. Okay, but I like that. <laughs> Who knows? I, I will say this: a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, dogs, you know, now are having a problem, and they actually have developed um, masks with naloxone for dogs because just sniffing some of the potent fentanyls are killing some of the dogs. So, um, yeah. So this is pretty incredible. Um, now, just so you have a clear understanding of this, I don't know why the fentanyl came out so light, but. Um, so there are basically five chemical classes that involve prescription opioids. And then there's uh, Kratom, which is one of a couple of um, non-poppy-derived um, naturally occurring opioids. And that's on the, all the way to your left. But 
Uh, I wanted to show you fentanyl, which falls in the fentanyl-papyridine class. And um, papyridine is in that class also in all the fentanyl. So the prescription fentanyls, alfentanyl, remifentanyl, sufentanyl, all of those are in that same class. And then the illicit fentanyls are underneath. There are far more illicits than the four that I listed there. Uh, those are perhaps the most common and among the most potent. But, but uh, there are many, many others, and I'm going to show them to you. Okay. So this slide, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties of pharmaceutical fentanyl and its derivatives. So this was actually uh, published in Practical Pain Management. I think it was actually in the journal that they had at their, um, let's see, what, what did it say with the uh, 2018? I think it was the August, uh, September, August issue. If not, it was last month. But they had it at the booth. In any case, um, what this does is, is it lists the, uh, the various um, uh, fentanyls that are available by prescription, uh, for outpatient use, and it tells you the protein binding, all that kind of stuff. But I think that one of the most compelling things on this slide um, is to look at uh, over in this column, the next to the last column on the right, so it'll be like over there, the next to the last column on the right, uh, talks about the potency relative to morphine, right? So, I mean, fentanyl is fentanyl, so it doesn't matter if it's in a transdermal patch, whether it's, uh, you know, a citrate injection or, or turfs, it's 80 to 100 times more potent. But if you follow that column down, uh, you'll see that these other fentanyls are more potent, even the prescription ones. So remifentanil is 100 times more potent than morphine, to up to 200 times more potent. Sufentanil is up to 1,000 times more potent. And carfentanil, carfentanil is up to 10,000 times more potent than morphine, or 1,000 times more potent than, than fentanyl. So this is a prescription drug for what we call ungulates, right? The, the very, very large mammals like horses, rhinos, and, and that sort of thing, right? So that's, what it, that's um, where, where it's indicated. So you can, now you can imagine if it's 10,000 times or 1,000 times more potent than fentanyl, you could put a sprinkle of this in, in, you know, in, in an ounce of heroin, and you could sell that heroin for almost nothing. I mean, know there was recent death, I think it was in Connecticut, that some of this stuff was sprinkled on, on cannabis, right? Why did they do it? They did it because they figured, well, you know, people want to buy my cannabis because they're making a little euphoric. Because depending on the kind of, you know, the, the, the strain of the cannabis, whether it's, you know, you know, whether it's got THC in it, whether it's got cannabidiol in it, I mean, if you give cannabidiol, you're not going to get any um, psychogenic effects, but it's cheaper than THC. So if you take cannabidiol and you put something euphoric in it, you figure, oh, people aren't going to know. Well, people, they don't know now because they're dead, right? But, but I mean, so that's, that's the risk here. All right. All right, so here are a partial list of Schedule I or non-prescription fentanyl derivatives. So going back to that chemistry slide, you can see if somebody does not know what they're looking for and they're only looking for fentanyl, all these drugs have that nucleus, all of them. All right, so, and, and I'm sure there's some on the list that are, or, that are going to make the list that are in development right now. All right, so are deaths due to illicit fentanyl? So this is data uh, from New Hampshire in 2015. And I believe that, uh, where's Mike Chapman? Right, they were the first state to really split this out, weren't they? Yes, um, and uh, you can get it from the Department of Justice. Either Department of Justice, not the Department of Health data. You can get it up to, like, yesterday. Good. <laughs> the DEA is coming after me. <laughs> All right, so, all right, so in 2015, thank you. In 2015, um, 
there was 351 total opioid deaths in New Hampshire. 28 of those people died of heroin as a single, as a single overdose. 28 as a single overdose. But there was 351, right? Fentanyl was a factor in 253 of the overdose deaths. 253. All right, so, um, so uh, in, in uh, 2017 New Hampshire data, between January and April 2017, there were zero deaths from heroin alone and 18 deaths due to fentanyl and two deaths from heroin-fentanyl combination. This is how prevalent it is. And the 86 deaths at the time uh, that I submitted these slides were pending toxicology reports. This slide here talks about the percentage of uh, counties within, uh, with changes in opioid prescribing in the United States between 2010 and 2015. All right, so um, if we look at morphine equivalent daily doses uh, per capita um, and follow that across, so that's the first, uh, that's the second line, or the, well, the, the, the top black line on the left, <clears throat> and follow that across, uh, in the counties it decreased by about 50%, so the, the morphine equivalent daily doses are going down. It was stable at about 28%, and it increased in uh, about 23%. For overall prescribing rate, um, in general, it went down by almost 50%, stable in 33%, and increased in 19%. Um, high dose prescribing rate, I guess it depends on your definition of prescribing, but uh, this, I believe, was over 100 milligram morphine equivalents, um, decreased by well, almost 87%. Decrease by so that's when, when we read these these data it says prescription prescription um, uh, overdose deaths have have, have increased or, or prescri- you know, prescriptions have, have increased between, you know ten times more twenty times more fifty times more since since two thousand and they might as well say since nineteen hundred it's it's just stupid I mean it, it, it it's idiotic and I'll tell you I review a lot of articles for a lot of journals and people put that crap in there and I send it back to them I said. We'll put the data in, but you're going to do it right. You're, you're, you're going to, you can put the data in, but you're going to say what the data means, and you're going to split it out, or the whole paragraph is coming out. I'm getting tired of seeing the same crap over and over and over again referenced in, in the literature, in the, in the media. It, it sickens me. Um, and, and if any of you are reviewing articles, you, uh, please, you really should do the same thing, I, I think. Um, then the average daily milligram uh, morphine equivalent per prescription has decreased by 72% uh, in, in, uh, of counties, stable in 25%, and increased in almost, almost none. So uh, here's uh, New Hampshire drug overdose deaths by year up to 2000. Uh, uh, this did not include 2018, but uh, into uh, 2017. Um, and um, uh, I mean, that's, that certainly is a problem, all right? But almost all those deaths, as I just pointed out to you, were from illicit fentanyl. They weren't from prescription drugs at all. So I, start, I tried to split this out for you to, so you could see uh, it, it in a different way. So in 2017, the current drug data as of um, 4, 4.18, wait, wait, was it 2.17? Um, I don't know why it says 2017, but this is data as of 2018. So um, um, this one shows fentanyl and no other drugs. Uh, 200 deaths. Uh, fentanyl, this was again in New Hampshire. Fentanyl and other drugs excluding heroin, 151. The combination of the two were three, 351. And you, mean, you can go down to heroin, there was one death. Heroin and other drugs excluding fentanyl, five. Now, who knows what they were? 
Um, heroin and fentanyl 17, unknown opioids 3, other opioids, opioids 51, and then total deaths caused by uh, opiates and opi uh, opioids 428. That's 428. So of the 483, 428 of them involved fentanyl. So um, analogs in New Hampshire in 2017, these were the most common. There are some others that have since been identified, but you can see there's a, there's a bunch of them. Like, I mean, so again, if you're not, if you don't know what you're looking for, you need analytical chem chemists to kind of pull out the fentanyl molecule and then see what's around it. Because if you don't do that, you're never going to know. It's going to be attributed to fentanyl. Or it may be, like, you're not going to confuse, you wouldn't confuse fluorofentanyl from acetylfentanyl because a fluoro group, uh, a fluorinated group is so much different than an acetyl group. Um, and you're not going to confuse it for a carfentanyl, but if you've got, uh, um, if you've got like the parafluorobutylbutyrofentanyl, um, that one can metabolize, and if the butyl group comes off, it may look like fluorofentanyl. <laughs> I mean, it's a disaster, right? So you really have to have some savvy analytical chemists, and you need to pay them to do this so we can keep these darn things out of the country. So um, this one, uh, as of April, um, fentanyl, uh, uh, no other drugs, 24, Fentanyl and other drugs, 10, total of 34. Uh, so basically, there was 35 deaths, and, and 34 of them were, were fentanyl. Now, as, as Mike Chapman pointed out, you can get these things like right up to the minute. But when I submitted these slides, uh, it, it, probably was, it probably was in April. It probably sent us in the, the day of the slide was due. This is an interesting one. Uh, my buddy here, um, uh, Trump's false war on opioids will only punish patients in pain. It's an opinion piece by Josh Bloom. It was really excellent. And um, Trump is quite as saying here, we have all the blue ribbon committees we want, but if we don't get tough on drug dealers, we're wasting our time. Now, in his definition of drug dealers, we're us, just uh, in case you wanted to know that, right? People that are prescribing and dispensing these, these drugs. Now, I think that the pill mills are pretty much gone now, right? Um, pill mills, so we have, we have, um, we, we have Suboxone mills. We have... We have people that are like hopefully prescribing Suboxone probably. How many patients are going to get through? We don't have enough, enough people that are doing MAT, and we have some people that are overdoing MAT. But in, in, in any case, um, uh, this is really uh, an, interesting, uh, an interesting article. Um, and so, so the real data versus the, versus the alternative facts. So um, again, the CDC states roughly that 64,000 people die each year from drug overdoses. We, we, we know that, all right? But they're all drugs, so those include all drugs. Many people assume that this is opioids only. Um, and again, we don't know, as I said earlier, whether, whether they're prescription over-the-counter, illicit, illicit, we, we, we don't know. And even the number, so the exact number that they quote usually is 63,632. That's inflated because it includes prescriptions and all these other things. And we lump them together in dissimilar groups. So the CDC claims that 40,000 people die each year from opioid overdoses. So they're, they're, they're willing to say that. We'll say, okay, we'll take, we'll take 14,000 off. We'll give you that. Um, and um, it's going to be 40,000. Or, or, or rather, 24,000. Right? So the real number is likely 10,000 to 15,000. That's, that's the real number. Uh, the CDC data in 2015... Half the overdose deaths involving prescription opioids also involve benzodiazepines, alcohol, and methamphetamine. All right, so if you take that factor out, it leaves us with about 5,000 deaths from prescription opioids. And, and even then, we don't know which of those 5,000 are legit and which ones aren't. 
So if we drill it down in the numbers a bit, this gets kind of fun. There's 64,000 drug overdose deaths on the left side there, 35,000 opioid overdose deaths, 20,100 fentanyl overdose deaths, 15,400 heroin overdose deaths, 14,400 prescription opioid overdose deaths. Okay, that we know. On the right side, uh, uh, 3,280 uh, involved methadone. Some of these are accidental. I, haven't, I didn't give the lecture this year, but in, in the past I've given lectures on some of the disasters that we get when we, when we prescribe opioids to patients in terms of drug interactions and, um, and genetic variability. And methadone is a freaking disaster, right? I mean, it's a great, it's a phenomenal drug, but if you don't know what you're doing, it's very dangerous. So we have, unfortunately, we have prescribers. I think they're more scared now than they used to be, but we have prescribers prescribing methadone that, that aren't experienced enough and, and probably shouldn't be doing it. Again, that, that I think is diminished tremendously. And we have some abusers using methadone who also uh, don't, don't have uh, experience with it, right? And then if you get a, if you get a, a methadone, uh, somebody that's abusing methadone and you decide to clean up their act and go on a grapefruit diet, then the grapefruit inhibits a 3 or 4 and then they die. I mean, it's, it's crazy stuff. Crazy stuff happens. So 2.2 uh, million non-medical use of prescription drugs, five, 52 million non-medical use of all drugs, 1 to 8 percent of people that take opioids become addicted. And I think that most experts believe it's closer to 2%. Okay? Um, it, I'm talking about people who are legitimately prescribed opioids and, and are, are compliant. 4% advanced to heroin. All right, so now see these, these numbers here, right? So if we believe the bottom bullet on the left side of 14,400 prescription opioid overdose deaths that are, that are let's say, legitimate Let's say they're in legitimate patients. I'm going, to, I'm, going to give, I'm going to give you that. This is data from 1999 uh, that shows that the NSAID deaths, NSAID-related deaths were 16,500. And that, that, uh, that was only deaths from GI bleed. It did not include cardiac deaths. It does not include the amount of people that ended up on dialysis. Now, I have to believe, although I could be wrong, because um, I've not studied it, but I have to believe that because of what's going on, there's probably more NSAID use now than there was before because legitimate pain patients have less alternatives, right? And, and aside from this, this number going up, I believe that probably there's, there's more dialysis patients as a result of it, right? Because some of these patients never come back from that. So having presented this information then, what should we do as clinicians? We should not perpetuate false information and rhetoric, whether it's in the clinic, whether it's in reviewing uh, professional articles, whether it's interviewing in the news. We, we, should, we should not sensationalize those things. And I generally require, unless I know the reporter very well, if, if they're doing a news story, um, I, I require that they let me review it before they print it. Because sometimes they'll, take it, they'll try and take out a sound. I mean, I'm very careful, careful with the sound bites but they, they, they will take a sound bite, a piece of it, and combine it with somebody else's sound bite, and all of a sudden, Jeff Uden said that, you know, we have a disaster with prescription opioids. So that's the deal I make. You want, you want to interview me? I will make myself accessible, but you're going to give me in writing that I get to review it first. Um, prejudge, uh, don't prejudge patients receiving chronic opioid therapy. Uh, don't withhold opioids just because. So I, I've been asked about many, many times about tapering, uh, tapering opioids, and and um, 
uh, my first question is why why are you taper why are you tapering it? Like I'm, I'm, I'm like like what do you mean by tapering? You know everybody says that I should taper it. Nah, that's not good enough. You you need to tell me why you're tapering it. Otherwise, I'm I'm, I'm not going to help you. Simple as that. All right. Um, th- that's the first question. Why are you tapering it? Are you tapering it because the patient misbehaved? Are you tapering it just because you think that you should give the patient less opioids? Like, why are you doing this? Are you tapering it because you don't like this patient? You want to make them miserable? Did the patient misbehave? Do you have a legitimate reason to taper it? If the patient misbehaved, then, then the next question is, all right, you know, we're going to do a slow taper, moderate taper, or a fast taper. All right? And, and those, that decision is made based on the reason we're tapering it. Right? If the patient misbehaved or they're selling their drugs or something, now if they're selling their drugs, they're done. They're going on, they're going on some kind of centrally acting alpha agonist, and, and, and I'm, I'm taping them real fast, assuming that they even have a drug in them. All right? So all these questions are very, very important. Uh, number four, provide chronic opioids without informed consent. So we certainly should not do that. Um, and I, I'm not talking about an opiate agreement. I'm talking about informed consent, just like the surgery. Here are the risks. Here are the benefits. Sign, you know, sign this paper. If you have any questions, you have time to ask those questions and make sure it's well documented in the chart. For pharmacists, this one kills me. Avoid counseling when patient forfeits it. For God's sake, you know, I mean, I, 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 mean, I haven't filled a prescription in a year, so like, who am I to say? But, but I mean, but seriously, every patient that comes in for an opioid prescription, every single time, every single time, should be counseled. They should not be given the option of forfeiting counseling. I'm not in a damn airplane going back to Albany, right? And I'm sitting, I'm sitting in two rows, six, three, 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 and three, and it's an exit row, right? And the stewardess comes up and says, um, I have to get all of your consent um, that, you can, that, that you're willing to participate to, you know, in an emergency. And then you have to say yes, 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 yes. You've got to hear this 12 times. Now, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that, the, hopefully, the chance of that plane going down is far less than the chance of somebody coming to your pharmacy and getting a prescription filled, dying or having an adverse effect. So in my mind, all right, we should, at the very least, we should not allow any patient to leave the pharmacy with an opioid prescription, whether it's new or not. We should be asking them every month, not just about the opioids, not just constantly about the opioids, how are your bowel movements? Are you taking any new products? Is anything changed in your life? Uh, is there any, any problems, any you know, depression, family issues? Because all these things can impact your opioid therapy. They should be asked this every single time. I mean, they may go to another store. They may go to Walmart. They may go to a gas station and pick up some OTC medication, which can interact with their drugs. They need to be reminded that... that or anything they take in their body can affect the blood levels of these drugs. They also need to be reminded, if you're on a chronic medication and you stop it, that can affect the blood levels of your drugs. They should be reminded that every single month. Um, number six, um, you should not prescribe or dispense opioids um, combined with sedative hypnotics without carefully assessing the benefits versus risks. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't give, that nobody in the world should receive benzodiazepines with opioids. But you need to assess the risk and see whether things can be done. Um, uh, if the patient refuses cognitive therapy because they think, you know, they, because they think that a shrink is going like, to you know, mess with their mind, um, you're still the one. It's your license that's prescribing those benzos. So that, you know, in my mind, the patient gets a choice. You either participate in alternative therapies or your benzos get tapered. 
I'm not saying I'm going to taper your benzos. Why well, I am saying that there's benefit to cognitive behavior therapy. And so um, even though you don't like it, it may do you some good. All right? Um, it may do you some good to get off the couch. And like, so um, recently one of my relatives had a, a heart problem and went into, and, and went into uh, rehab. And, and uh, it wasn't a pain situation. He just he, he had to go to rehab. Uh, and and um, uh, I called him up one day and said, how you doing? He's like, oh, I'm doing great. I started physical therapy. Oh, what did they do? He goes, well, I was there for like 20 minutes. I, 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 threw, I threw a ball around and, and, um, and I walked around in circles. I did like, you know, three laps and they put me on a bicycle for five minutes. I said, that was all 20 minutes. He goes, yeah. And I said, uh, so how are you feeling? He goes, well, I'm, I'm a little sorry. He says, it's the most, the most exercise I've had in 20 years. So I'm like, well, you know, so this is the problem. We got people that want to take benzos and opioids, and they're depressed, and they're sitting around on the freaking couch, right? So, so they, 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 need, they need counseling. We need, and, and for God's sake, please don't give anybody carisoprodol and an opioid. I mean, I suppose there may be rare instances where it's okay, but for the most part, uh, that, that's a potential disaster. And so what, what should we do then? Well, we certainly should check the PDMP, unless you're in, in Missouri. They don't have one. Um, I, I just don't get that. Um, participate and promote educational programs for patients, lawmakers, and law clinicians. So if, if you have the time, and I know it's difficult, um, please make the time to, to speak to, especially if you see an article in the newspaper, and some, you know, maybe the, your, your governor was interviewed, and, and there's a, 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 an article in the newspaper, our county is going to combat the opioid epidemic. For God's sake, please call them up and set them straight, um, that we don't have a prescription opioid epidemic. A BT a team player with prescribers, community pharmacists, nurses, behavioral health clinicians, physical therapists, podiatrists, dentists, I don't care where they are. We, we, we I mean, seriously, uh, more than ever, we need to be a team. I mean, for God's sake, you, you, you know, you got, you got physical therapists that you got, you got one therapist seeing, seeing uh, 10 patients in an hour or more, and then you got, you got PT assistants like running their butts off and the physical therapists running, running in circles. You got pharmacists filling 70 prescriptions an hour and they can't get a technician unless they fill 71 and haven't peed in 12 hours. And you got doctors, PAs, and nurse practitioners seeing patients every 10 minutes, and they got to do an opioid agreement, they got to do the urine screen, they got to assess the urine screen, got to write a freaking note, they got to check the PDMP. For God's sake, I mean, I feel like we're, we are all, in our own little worlds, we are all in shackles. And something's got to be done about that. All right? And if we don't do it together, nothing's going to happen. Um, and then in an ideal world, Assess the risk of opioid-induced respiratory depression, abuse, and misuse prior to discharge in a hospital setting uh, and when prescribing dispensing opioids. Because, you know, now we've got people saying, and, and you know who they are, politicians saying, people get admitted to the hospital um, and, and, uh, and, they, and they leave a drug addict. Just, just suck it up and give them aspirin. Like, uh, seriously? Um, yeah, I'll do that, especially in my, in my bleed risk patients. I'll give them the aspirin. So... Um, and then um, treat each patient with individualized approach and, and, and respect and explain to them what you're doing, why you're doing it. I mean, I've heard in the palliative care setting, you know, I don't want to do drug screens or have people fill out the SOPRACOM because they're palliative care. Well, you know what? E even, even if your patient's the most honest person in the world, it could be somebody, it could be a caregiver in the home that's taking their drug. And meanwhile, if the oncologist has comp blushed to, to, to just up the dose, they're upping the dose because the patient's complaining of pain, and unbeknownst to the patient, not even receiving their drug, right? So there are all kinds of issues in palliative care. It's not a free ticket to receiving opioids. And number six, evaluate for and provide naloxone for in-home use. Um, 
and you know, and I think that very some people think that they should all have it, and, and that's really the issue right now. So if we could assess the percent risk of opioid respiratory induced respiratory depression, which we can uh, with uh, a tool called Reassord, um, if you can assess that percent risk, the next question is, what's what's the percent that we give naloxone? Is it is it if the risk is two percent over the next six months that we give naloxone? That's two out of hundred people. You know, if it was two people that I knew out of, I mean, there's 100 people in there. So, you know, I think the two of you might want naloxone. Uh, or, you know, if, if it's 30%. So you got a 30% risk, are those the people? So that's, that's the issue. We can, we can assess the percent risk, but we have to decide which of those patients are going to get. Yes, sir. I, well, I agree. So for those of you who didn't hear him, uh, Dr. Shaman said that he, he feels that irrespective of what the percent risk is, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be treating anybody differently. We should, we should be safe rather than sorry. And, and um, I'm not going to comment on that one way or another, um, but, but um, I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> all right? I want to make sure I'm compliant. So, um, all right, so anyway... Um, so uh, I think that uh, um, we have the, the post-test here. So non-medical use of prescription opioid analgesics from 2000 to about 2010 have increased by about 50%. Uh, they've they've uh, decreased, though, of course, since then. And which of the following is true regarding fentanyl? Um, I want to point out that prescription fentanyl use is not on the rise. If anything, it's probably going down. And illicit fentanyl could be less potent than pharmaceutical fentanyl, but it generally is not. And that is it. Any questions? Yes? Less a question, more a statement. Is agreeing with your university, universality in giving people uh, the take home naloxone, but I tell my patients that you know, this, your opioid gets locked up in the safe. Your naloxone is sitting in the kitchen cupboard. Everybody in the house needs to know how to use it. And if you're lucky, it's going to get stolen. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and some, some states, that, thank you, and some states actually will, will allow people to fill an naloxone prescription. Like, for example, in my state, I went to a pharmacy to get an naloxone filled, and the pharmacist says to me, um, yeah, you, you can have this done on your insurance. I'm like, no, it's not for me. And he's like, yeah, the insurance, we've spoken to them. They're, they're happy to pay for it. I think the next thing they do is start collecting data and say, if you're a drug addict, who knows, but... But anyway, uh, yes, it's very important to have the naloxone in a place that's easily accessible, just like a fire extinguisher. There was another question here? No, yes? Where is the illicit fentanyl coming from? I have a, a lab in my basement. And, <laughs> and I, got these, I got a bunch of Asian people in my basement. No, it comes from China. It comes from China. Um, so, and, and, other, and Asian countries, but mostly China. Uh, some is coming in from, from Mexico, but it's, yeah. But it, yeah. So is this street drug that we're finding with the illicit fentanyl? And is, it, is it for sure that it's all illicit fentanyl? Are we sure that it's not from some of the prescription drugs that are being stolen from 
So the, the, the ones, the, the, the states, the medical examiners that are starting to split this out are looking at this. And I, I'm telling you, the fentanyl, like if you look at it on a graph, the fentanyl, prescription fentanyl is almost on the bottom line. The illicit fentanyl is going straight up. So it's, if you do it, it's pretty easy to do it. Sometimes they can't determine which illicit fentanyl it is, but they know it's illicit because it's got a big side chain on it. Yeah, well, then it's a good chance that, that that's what it was. And since you brought it up, um, in case uh, you, you, you missed the poster that we presented, so along those lines with heroin, we had, um, a, a, it was actually a legal case, a person was, had a saliva test for heroin. And like you said, the half-life is low, but what we're looking, what we're looking for is 6-MAM or 6-acetylmorphine. Uh, so it's the metabolite. So more, heroin is basically a morphine molecule with an acetyl group on each side. And this woman was falsely accused of using heroin. She had, there was no evidence to support it, either before or after. <clears throat> and so I took the case and I started going through and asked her questions. And so it turns out that she was, she was on morphine 60 milligrams three times a day. And she was also drinking uh, apple vinegar tea on a regular basis, like two or three times a day. The day of the saliva test, she ate Olive Garden and had oil and vinegar. She was taking Excedrin two or three times a day and once daily aspirin. So we're talking about saliva here. So what ended up happening, there's morphine in saliva, and, and the acetyl group was donated by one or more of those other factors. So it was real 6-MAM, but it didn't come from heroin. Yes? Um, quick question. Is the Chinese government doing anything about this, and are people being harmed in the making of the illicit fentanyl? I'm guessing if, if, if dogs are dying by sniffing, I'm guessing... Okay, those are, those are good questions. Um, there's been communication between the United States and China. You know, the extent to which that's had an impact, I, I don't think much because it's, the, the problem is getting worse. Um, I mean, I don't think that anybody, you know, these people are making illicit fentanyl in China. It's not like they're paying taxes in China. So the government doesn't, you know, the government has no interest in illicit fentanyl leaving the country, um, you know, unless there's corrupt politicians that are involved. Uh, but the, so, yes, there are conversations, but it doesn't seem like anything's happened. And the second part of your question, are people making the fentanyl being harmed? They all, um, well, I don't know, because I, I haven't actually visited one of these labs, but I, I assume that they're wearing respirator masks. I mean, they make enough money that they can give their employees respirators, I would, I would think. Yeah, I mean, that's how you would do it in pharmaceutical industry, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's, it's either an enclosed environment with robots, or, which I doubt is the case with illicit fentanyl. They're probably wearing respirator masks. And they have dog. They have respiratory masks now for dogs. Other questions? Yes. Okay. So how can you distinguish between illicit fentanyl or or prescription fentanyl on UDS? Okay. The first question is, um, um, I, I don't even think that there's an amino assay. For fentanyl, I think there's an, there's an ELISA test, so it's more sophisticated, but that's not going to separate out illicit from illicit fentanyl. So that's number one. The second question is, you know, if you're doing a urine screen by chromatography, uh, can you split it out? Um, 
It depends. Um, with, with, it, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're purely looking for, for fentanyl with liquid chromatography, uh, then you can split that out. But, but it's still fentanyl, and you can see it on the graph on, on, on the report. But you have to know what you're looking for. If, it has, if some of the illicit fentanyl is being broken down, there's going to be remnants of fentanyl left behind. So it depends on which illicit fentanyl it is and the stability of that fentanyl. So the answer to your question is really yes and no. But you need to know exactly what you're looking at. But it, doing a urine screen is not going to answer that question for you. Like, like you, you pointed out that there was, yeah, there was illicit fentanyl. Other questions? Yes? Uh, no, because the, the question was, can you do a blood test, and if it didn't have, like, fentanyl citrate, can you presume it's one of the others? But first of all, there'll be no citrate in the blood because it splits, right? It's going to be plain fentanyl. So um, it, it's, it's actually a similar answer to the other question. The fentanyl molecule is always going to be present, and it's, and it's the side chains around it that change the illicit fentanyl. So what you could do, I mean, but you'd have to have really savvy clinicians to do this. What you could do if you ordered those, those first of all, it'd be very expensive to do it. But if you did it and you ordered those things, you would have to know, for example, that if you had a patient on a, um, let's say, a 25 microgram fentanyl patch, uh, then, you should, then you would know that 0.6 nanograms per mil would match up to that, plus or minus about 1.4 nanograms per mil. Um, so if the patient's on on a 50 microgram patch, then it's going to be about 1.2 nanograms per mil. You would know that, and you would also know what the metabolites are, right? But if, if there was other fentanyl in there, um, you, you would be able to match up the serum level of the fentanyl versus the metabolites versus these other, these other substances. But I mean, we can't even get people to, to, to interpret urine drug screens. Can you imagine having all these clinicians trying to figure out whether it's illicit fentanyl, illicit fentanyl, and what percent. Oh, my God. It would be a freaking nightmare. Uh, you're welcome. All right. Um, I think that's it. Oh, oh one, one more question. All right, last question. So if the patient is on fentanyl with this crisis going on, is, should we leave them on that, or should we switch in to another group? Oh, I love that question. The question is, with this fentanyl issue going on, should we leave them on fentanyl or switch them? I personally see no reason to take them off of fentanyl. I think that as opioids go, and I showed you the list of the five different opioid classes, as opioids go, fentanyl is, and the fentanyl derivatives, um, the prescription derivatives, uh, and, and maybe the illicit derivatives, I, I don't know, but certainly remifentanyl, alfentanyl, all those, the prescription fentanyls have the least histamine reactivity of any other opioids. So there's less itching they're more well-tolerated. They have a short half-life, so if there's a problem, they're out of the body quickly, um, except in the case of a transdermal alveolar, it's in the skin, so it keeps getting released. But they, they are, it's, it's a really clean, clean opioid as opioids go, and I would hate to see you know, somebody taking fentanyl away from somebody uh, because of this problem that's going on, especially if you're monitoring them appropriately. Okay? All right, thank you all.